Uh, the reading of the scriptures from Genesis 11, reading verses 1 to 9. Uh, I invite your uh, reverent attention to the public reading now of God's word here at Genesis 11. And may God give us grace both in the reading and the hearing uh, to hear in faith. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the, of all the earth and he left off the building of the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Long ago and uh, far away, there was an ancient conflict uh, that is really living history for our own culture and world today. Essentially, the conflict is about uh, the word of God or the word of man. Uh, if you look at Genesis uh, chapter 11 and verse 4, there's an international conspiracy against God. Come, let us build together. Let us unite in one philosophy uh, that there is no God. We're the masters of our own ship. Um, we have total control over our own bodies and life. And uh, let's, let's do this for the glory of man. And then God comes and says in verse 7, let's go down and cause him to be in utter confusion. It's our reminder respecting the word of the Lord and our philosophy that Christ is at the center of everything of our lives. He is preeminent in all things and that we exist not for ourselves but for his glory and to advance his kingdom is that his word will always win against the word of man. So the nations uh, refuse to scatter and unite uh, according to uh, the divine mandate of uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and they want to uh, unite to worship their God. Uh, verses 1 to 4. And in verses 5 to 9, God scatters them by confusing their efforts. A remarkable, great miracle of God intervening. Uh, the context, as you know, from our previous chapter, chapter 10, is the table of nations. 
Uh, it's very interesting, uh, the text uh, reads, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, they use the same language. The Hebrew text is figurative, of course, but it's literally one lip. Uh, they want to have just one lip, one, one language with which uh, to spread um, godlessness. Uh, geographically, mankind is uh, moving east. Uh, that is, as you know, something of a sinister term in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, Adam and Eve were driven east out of the garden. At one time, they had unfettered, glorious, continual fellowship with God. Uh, they were in the midst of uh, profound beauty and the joy of total satisfaction, the great God. They fall and God drives them out of the garden. Uh, as well, uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse uh, 16, Cain uh, murders his brother and is driven east, away from God. And they settle in the land of Shinar. Daniel defines this uh, as Babylon. Babylon is literally the, the gate and the home of the gods. So it's not just a geographic displacement. Uh, they are gathering a place that one day uh, will be the center of idolatry. Of course, uh, implicitly and explicitly means that uh, they totally reject the God of heaven. Uh, their denial of uh, the cultural mandate is uh, obviously explicit. Uh, God tells them to go and to fill the earth. They say, no, we want to gather in one place and facilitate our strength, our power, and our godlessness against the God of heaven. It's a godless unity outside of the blessing of God because it excludes God. They don't want God, they don't need God, they don't care anything about God. So it's this great argument, is it not, of living history today? Internationalism, no nationalism, all the nations uh, united for what? Against God. It's always that way. So this is long ago and far away. Profoundly significant for our own day. So they unite to worship the gods, verses 1-4. to They said, verse 3, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly for stone with tar as mortar. I was reading this and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. There's an, there's an implicit contrast here to the absolute beauty of the precision and the majesty of the tabernacle. These men and women are building a church. Can you imagine using tar as mortar? I mean, it had been profoundly ugly, but that's what man does. Uh, in contrast to the beauty of the tabernacle, the beauty of the temple, the beauty of the church of which Christ is head. And let us build a city and a tower. Uh, from the verb to make great. It's reminding us, Moses is reminding us, they want to make themselves great. They want to advance their philosophy against God. They don't need God. They're going to call upon the gods, but they can reach reach into the heavens and build a place so the gods of heaven will have to come down and meet with them. The tower is a temple with a staircase and a shrine at the top for the gods to come down. 
ancient Near Eastern history. It's called a ziggurat that was to reach into the heavens. Obviously profoundly hyperbolic because man cannot reach into the heavens. I mean, I think of the, the, the great uh, space endeavors that are going on today. Absolutely incredible. I'm thankful for it in a way because we learn a great deal from the astronauts and scientific experiments, but as far as they go, they cannot find God because of His majesty and His eminence and His transcendence. And they say, let us make for ourselves a name. What does that mean? A reputation of our fame and our glory and our strength and our power. That we don't need the God of heaven. We have our own gods. And we're going to make them to come down and meet with us. Commune with us. Uh, it's very interesting that this uh, place where they're meeting uh, eventually will become a, a city. I, I reminded you, I think this is very important uh, in many respects today because in the book of Genesis, I think it's perhaps uh, sequestered to the book of Genesis, uh, cities are very, very dangerous places. And Babylon will eventually become a rival to the one true God. It's instructive that the patriarchs built what? They didn't build cities, did they? They built altars to worship the one true God. They were pilgrims moving through. They left, if you will, a footprint of their presence that were altars to the one great God of heaven. Now, sometimes, even in our culture, cities are false places of worship. Think of, of uh, Mecca, the birthplace of the prophet. Medina, place of his burial. Shrines so that temple uh, 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 pilgrims from all over the world can Come and worship what? A false god. A no god. A false prophet. And there is unity through their international apostasy. It's the point of Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 to 4. They're internationalists and they refuse to scatter because they care nothing about the word of God and know nothing of his mandate. And they think that in their unity they will gain access to the gods and the gods will come down to them. It's a conceptual parallel, as you uh, might imagine, uh, to this uh, in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, the emperor has a dream. It's about this majestic tree that reaches up into the heavens. And all of the people of the world come to sit under the shade of this tree. And all the birds of the air nest in it, and, and everything is provided for the citizens of the world by the bounties of this tree. No one can interpret the dream except for one man, a man of the one true God, who gives dreams and visions, who raises up an interpreter by the name of Daniel. Daniel says, O Emperor, this, this dream is about you. Uh, you, you reach up uh, into the heavens. Daniel chapter 4 verse 22. It is to you, O King, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Babylon was the most powerful and richest nation of the day, and all people would come. Uh, to worship their gods. Uh, the emperor himself was a god. 
great internationalist was Nebuchadnezzar. But there's some very, very sinister part of the dream. The tree is cut down. There's a heavenly watcher that comes with an axe and cuts a tree down. It's really applicable to Nebuchadnezzar. Because one day, standing on his balcony, he says, My, how great am I, this great city. Beauty, hanging gardens, all of its wealth and majesty. Everyone comes to me. How great am I. And in a moment, God turns him into a cow. And he goes out the pasture. Until God causes his reason to return to him. It's a lesson to Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a God. God humiliates him in a profound way. Strikes him down. Reminder to us that there is one God. One true God. Only one true God. And he plays with Nebuchadnezzar as if he is nothing. It's very likely that the imagery is of cow. Because in ancient civilizations they worship the cow. And so God, in a very ironic way, is saying, oh, you think you're great? I'll make you like the very God that you serve. And he literally becomes a cow and eats the grass of the field and wakes up with the dew of the morning all over him until God causes his reason to return to him. What a great reminder to all of us. We have all these men of power and majesty and strength and sometimes they become so incredibly full of themselves. But it's a reminder to us that there is one God in heaven who raises up kings in His own way and when He's finished with them, He dismisses them. Because He alone is all-powerful and He alone is great. God, again, cuts the tree down. It's very interesting, if you recall, uh, that imagery is picked up uh, of our own Savior, Christ. Because He ultimately is the true vine who provides for His people. Their arrogance in verse 4 is, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so there's this incredible rebellion against God. And God comes down. They think they can reach up, but God comes down to answer them in judgment. To unravel their work and scatter them anyway. Verses 5 to 9. Let's look at Genesis 11, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The language here is very, very sarcastic. Dripping in irony. Their efforts are so puny that he has to come down to investigate its total insignificance. I mean, even the majesty of our great scientists and engineers, of which, again, I'm profoundly grateful. Respecting the majesty of God, utterly insignificant. They, they barely scrape the fullness of the majesty of the universe in which we live and the God who created it. But He does not come to meet with them. He comes to judicially judge them. Uh, if their apostasy makes them one, they will only intensify. Verse 6. So this great gathering, this unity of men to build this great temple, 
is uh, an act of apostasy. And if God in his uh, mercy permits it to continue, it will only intensify and destroy everything. And so he comes to intervene. The judgment is to turn their internationalism into nationalism to make it more difficult for them to establish a one world religion. And the content of the judicial decision of God is in verse 7. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And in a moment, all the languages of the world are thrown upon men so they can no longer work together. It's really an act, it's an act of judgment upon their puny efforts. Uh, But it's also an act of grace for us. Because in their confusion, it slows down apostasy and rebellion against God. So they're scattered. Because God is the transcendent one. And He must stoop low even to judge them. And His resolve will trump their resolve. It's the old language of Napoleon. Men propose, but God disposes. And so we have the birth of many, many languages. And so their tower and their city of rebellion is deconstructed by one judicial system of the great God of heaven. And the judgment is language uh, to break their cooperative efforts at constructing a false temple. And again, God speaks and creates these languages to restrain apostasy and idolatry. Thus the Lord scattered them and their construction, verse 8, stops. It's a parallel to this in Hosea 10.13. You've plowed wickedness. You've reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Very interesting. Uh, the language here is uh, uh, that of sowing, reaping, and a harvest. Uh, what's the harvest? You've eaten the fruit of lies. And Hosea says, because you have trusted in your own way. Reminded of the reverse, Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes but in vain. Greatness of our God and His provisions for us. This great construction metaphor that God is the builder of our lives and our provider. He's also our watchman who protects and keeps us. The very great uh, figure of speech here, the technical term is paranomasia. Uh, The city here is called Babylon because God confuses them, uh, creates, if you will, Babel. And in that confusion, they can no longer build their false temple. Our reminder, God always wins against false religion. He will always defeat the idols of the world, reminding us that there's but one true God and we're to hold fast to Him, believe Him, hope in Him, follow Him, and keep Him with the entirety of the reminder that He is our keeper forever. So thankfully, God has come down in an act of judgment, but in our day, uh, He comes down again in a great act of salvation. He judges but he also saves. 
So God begins to reverse the judgment uh, in his initiative to come down in sun and to spirit climaxing in the coming down of the great eternal city of Jerusalem. You and I know that Jesus comes down in the incarnation and dwells among us and initiates salvation. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice the imagery there. God comes down. We could never reach high enough. We couldn't tie our lives to a thousand rockets to reach up into heaven. So God comes down in His Son, dwelt among us, And the apostles say, we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten of God the Father, full of grace and truth. It's God in his grace. We could never, we could never build a ziggurat high enough or tall enough to reach up into God. So he condescends in his son. That we might have grace and truth. It's the divine initiative. Thank God. He comes down in his son. And his son saves. That is what the son does. He saves, uh, Matthew chapter 1, he saves his people from their sins. And when he leaves, he dispatches his spirit. His spirit comes down. Great act of condescension. Doesn't leave us alone. He knows we need a helper. The spirit is that helper. At Pentecost, he comes in power. Incredible power. Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered and said to them, All as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who is mightier than me. And not I'm not even fit to untie the throng of his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. At Pentecost, again, he comes in that power. As you know, Pentecost is a harvest festival. Uh, the historic account of the coming down of the Great Spirit is in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the theophany. It's an image of the theophany of God to the children of Israel at Sinai. He comes in fire and in power. In Sinai, they were terrified. Acts 2. The people of God praise him for coming down. Acts chapter 2, I think, is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3. For I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. The context of Isaiah is reassurance to Israel that he's not finished with them yet. And he validates it and the promise of restoration. But for us, it's even greater than that because the end time restoration has come in Son and Son and Spirit. We couldn't reach up, so He comes down in salvation. And the Spirit comes in power to reconstitute Israel for the purpose of witness. If you will, Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Think about it in contrast to Genesis 11. The people refuse God's mandate to fill the earth because they want autonomy as evidenced in the ziggurat. God mocks them and scatters them. But in Acts 2, the children of Israel scattered all over the world are now coming back to Jerusalem in this great harvest festival. And God comes down in languages to bless them, meaning a reversal of the curse of Genesis chapter 11. And the singularity of the language, the one language of the gospel, and the gospel of love. And the Spirit comes in power upon the disciples to enable them to witness. You know, language, if you think about it, is really a beautiful gift from God. It enables us to communicate. Yeah. They like Mother's Day. We, uh, we can communicate to our mothers that we love them, honor them, respect them, revere them, cherish them because of the gift of language. Long ago and far away, the nations were confused because God scattered them. And now something profoundly significant is happening in this incredible miracle of one language that's gathering uh, the people in a unified sense of the majesty of the transcendence of the one true God. And of course, the Spirit is the power of witness. Acts chapter uh, 1 verse 8, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So now there's this incredible unity to this international event that prior to the coming of the Spirit, would have been impossible. What energizes the apostle to go to the end of the world? God coming down in the majesty of the gift of the Spirit. Incredible unity occurs. The miracle is the disciples are miraculously speaking the Gentile languages of the diaspora. Jews coming to Jerusalem. And the entire company hears the gospel and the languages of their patrimony. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 11. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. A total reversal of Genesis chapter 11. God comes down in judgment. Now He's coming in great love and blessing in the one language of the gospel, a universal language of the gospel. And the content of the message of Acts chapter 2 is there is no forgiveness in the old temple, but only in the message of the new. As you know, in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter quotes uh, the Septuagint of Joel 2, an unmistakable prophetic fulfillment. Acts chapter 2 and verse 16. And this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9. For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him shoulder to shoulder. That prophecy is now being fulfilled in the book of Acts chapter 2. The end time salvation has begun in the gathering of the Gentiles. Jews in Acts chapter 2 are coming to faith in Christ. And then they're going to go out and share the message to the Gentiles. The great event that occurs in Acts chapter 2 of the 
uh, end time presence of the judgment of God. Uh, it shall be, verses 17 and 18, in the last days God says that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream de- dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour out in those days my spirit and they shall prophesy. So the new age has begun. The end time judgment and the end time restoration of the people of God has started. And the presence of the Spirit validating this great miracle of the power of God. Broken out. It's interesting if you, if you look again at the language of something that's uh, profoundly significant that's had occurred. Uh, look at the language of verses 17 and 18. It's irrespective irrespective of gender, age, and social status. Previously, uh, the entire nation of Israel was centered upon the man. Now it's irrespective of gender, social status. Previously, it was centered upon those of great learning. Now it's irrespective. All men and women and boys and girls, by the power of the Spirit, and receive the gospel irrespective of their social status. Secondly, Peter is validating the breakup of the old order. Verses 19 and 20. Now will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. These are cosmic signs in the Old Testament uh, such signs were indicative of the breaking up of an old order, if you will, beginning of the end. So that the old order of the old temple is breaking up, losing its significance, because there, now there is a new order in Christ as the temple himself. The Old Testament cosmic signs pretend the end of the world, but here it's the breakup of the old order of Israel's national identity, its temples and its priests, all being swept away. Because now there's one high priest, one God to worship through His eternal Son. And in Son and Spirit, there's now a new order inaugurated by Christ. Again, rethink Genesis 11. Man trying to reach up. Here it's God and incredible condescensions coming down and the incarnate Son to effect a one-time sacrifice of Himself. A one-time sacrifice of Himself so great, so majestic, that in one moment of time, He is able to forgive the sins of the entire coming of the sons of God. Incredible. Think of of it, if you will, in the construct of the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Thousands upon thousands of bulls and goats and sheep, turtle doves. Of the pouring out of wine. Of bringing in the first fruits of the harvest. Incredible value if we could even calculate it uh, in terms of produce. And all of the shedding of blood. Now just one sacrifice. Of infinite value. So infinite. 
it purchases the people of God, irrespective of their gender, race, social status. Christ coming down to buy. The very word redemption is an economic term. If you will, you go to a pawn shop and you hawk something, and then if you want it back, you have to go and buy it back. Christ comes down, one sacrifice of himself to purchase, to buy us out of the slave market of sin. No ziggurat, God coming down. And again, all of the languages of the diaspora, they're hearing it in their own tongue. By the way, I would remind you, there's always this great controversy about gifts today. This is my understanding of the gift of tongues. Literally, known languages that people coming from their patrimony could understand in a great miraculous event. Not widely held that way today, but I think that's simply the context of the book of Acts. But the significance of it is what is profound. God in a great miracle, gifting men who knew not these Gentile languages to now speak them in the language of love, in the language of the gospel, unifying them in the language that is, in and of itself, the church. Uh, we sang the start of our service, a mighty fortress is our God. Nothing can destroy the church of God. It comes together in love by the power of Son and Spirit. It makes us one, which in and of itself is an incredible miracle. How can people of manifest different backgrounds and, if you will, perhaps not languages, but maybe dialects and uh, accents, uh, come together as one? How does that happen? The Spirit comes down and makes it so. We couldn't reach high enough. So God dis- condescends in the Spirit and makes us one. The language of the Gospel we don't, we don't come to hear about some philosophical treatment of mankind or some aspect of social justice other than the fact they might be found in the scripture. We come because what unifies us is what God has done for us and in us by Son and Spirit. Incredible unity in the midst of incredible diversity. That's the power of God. That's the reverse of Genesis chapter 11 contrast of the scattering Genesis chapter 11 I'm not unmindful that the prophets foretell a day of the advancement of incredible deception uh, that false prophets and false teachers will come and deceive people uh, to delude them into thinking that they are one uh, perhaps in internationalism uh, but certainly in profound idolatry As God scattered them in Genesis chapter 11, He will uh, come again in judgment and scatter them into incredible destruction. There's another coming down I remind you of. 
First part of Genesis 11, God comes down in judgment. Uh, it's greater reversal. Uh, Acts chapter 2, he comes down uh, to reverse the judgment. Uh, what's the final coming down? Exactly right. The heavenly city. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice, notice the movement coming down out of heaven. We could never reach up. So God comes again, his great city comes down from heaven, made ready. The metaphor is so profoundly beautiful. Uh, all of us, I trust all of us, enjoy going to weddings and uh, seeing the bride adorned in great beauty. Uh, everyone has their eyes at a moment fixed upon her. Think of, think of the majesty of heaven coming. Uh, we will, we will we will, I think, sometimes experience that great event, uh, should God uh, uh, not tarry. But even so, uh, uh, if, if we could even think metaphorically, of, it's almost as if we're broken. It's almost as if we're spent. And then we see the heavenly city coming down to gather us and to remove every vestige of the curse. And we too will be clothed in the righteous acts of the saints. Unified. Because there's one God. One Savior. And one Spirit. Who makes us one in our love and affection of the majesty that He was and is and is to come. 